This past year, one of the most searched out phrases on the most popular Christian website, BibleGateway.com, was end times. And I think we can all understand why people were searching out that term, particularly in the scriptures, because so many people are wondering, are we at the very end of the end times? I was reading an online magazine recently, and it cited an AP poll where 63% of Americans who call themselves religious believe that the pandemic we are currently going through is some kind of a message from God, a signal, a warning to us of judgment and coming to the end of time. There's even been folks that have been upset about the weather recently. Uh, out east, they had a very unusual snowstorm that uh, really upset and rattled people. I'll show you why. They saw purple lightning actually striking the Hudson River and then this shot of lightning that appears to be on top of the Statue of Liberty, although it's right behind it. And so people were up in arms. I mean, is, is God sending us a message? Is there, this is so strange and so weird. Is this something to do with the end? And then across the Atlantic and parts of Africa and Asia and the Middle East, there have been these large swarms of locusts, some of them as big as, as a large city that have been settling down and just consuming vegetation. And the fear is that this year they'll pop up there in Europe and cause all kinds of havoc and damage and trouble. And then there's the heavens, the skies. There's been a lot of activity, lots of asteroids and meteors buzzing by the earth and in fact, uh, not too long ago, one went by about the size of a car, and scientists didn't even know it until it was like six hours past, which then caused people to wonder, do they really know what's out there and what's heading this way? And then obviously there's all of the unrest over this past year, economic unrest, social unrest, and political unrest. And Obviously, this has been a traumatic week for our country. It's affected all of us as we have seen what's been happening in D.C. And we're going to talk a little bit about that toward the end of the message. But these are the kinds of things that, that have people asking those questions. Is something afoot? Are we coming to the culmination of history as we have known it? Um, you know, are we moving toward a one world system? Should we expect the Antichrist to show up? Or is this just a phase we're going through and, you know, pretty soon we'll be over this and we'll be back to normal, whatever that might be. People are wondering to themselves, you know, is this, is, are those prophecies, those crazy prophecies in the Bible, are they, are they really true? And, and is there something that we can learn from all of this that would help us understand the times and discern how we ought to live our lives? And of course, people have been asking questions like that for all of history, it seems like. Every time our lives feel threatened or our lifestyles feel threatened, when things get out of control, we automatically wonder if it's the end. And so I want to welcome you to our brand new series called What in the World is Going On? How many times have you asked that question over the last 12 months? Well, we're going to answer that question in the sense of looking at what Jesus has to say about the future. What in the world is going on? Jesus' words about the future. We're going to be looking at what's called the Olivet Discourse that you'll find in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke. And uh, they all kind of have a different perspective of it. And we'll be drawing from all three to get the whole picture in front of us. We're going to look at what it tells us about Jesus' thoughts about the future. 
And then toward the last half of our series, we're going to look at some other words of Jesus about the future as well. Now, I know what some of you are thinking to yourselves. You're thinking, really? I mean, isn't that, isn't prophecy just like too complex? And, and it, I mean, isn't it, um, you know, hard to understand because there's so many different ways to interpret it? Do you really think we should be spending our time looking at that? And I do think we should be spending our time looking at that. And I'll give you some reasons why. The first reason is this whole issue of deception. Now, we've been dealing with deception ever since the garden, when the devil deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's just been going on and on and on. But one of the things we know is that as we come to a culmination of time as we know it, deception gets bigger, it gets darker. In fact, Jesus said these words over in Luke chapter 18. He asked this question, he said, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Will there be any faith on earth? Will people believe? And he was probably thinking of these words that he spoke in Matthew chapter 24, describing life when he returns. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. In other words, life was just going on. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes again. In other words, you know, by and large, people are not going to expect him to come. They're just going to kind of be going along with life and enjoying life. And suddenly, judgment will come like the flood came as well. And so, you know, we don't want to be caught up in that deception. We want to know what is the truth. And the good news is, while a lot of people, and I found myself asking, what is the truth anymore about the pandemic, about, you know, politics and all the things that are going on? You know, I keep reminding myself, I've got the truth. It's in God's Word. And God's Word is the filter by which I need to examine the world around me and discern the world around me. We always have the truth. We always have God's Word. A second reason we need to do this is so we can plan and prepare. So we can plan and prepare. Daryl Bach, who is a, a New Testament professor, has this little saying. He says, you know, in order for us to have an understanding of our present circumstances, we need to appreciate the future. We need to know what the future holds. In other words, if you think about this, when you travel someplace, you're going to go somewhere, you think about where you're going, and that helps you decide what you're going to pack, what you're going to take with you. If you're going to the north of Minnesota in the wintertime, you're probably not going to take your suntan lotion and a bathing suit. But if you're heading down the Caribbean, you will, right? So knowing what's in the future helps me understand how to live right now, how to prepare for what is going to come. I can think of another reason to find proof. You know, there's been a lot of messianic figures, a lot of prophets throughout history who have claimed to know when the world is going to end, who've made great prophecies, right? And the way you discover whether they are true or not is by time and events. And of course, they've all been proven wrong. How about Jesus? How do we know that what he said is true? You know, amongst the progressive Christian movement, we'll be talking about that particularly next weekend, there is this idea that Jesus made mistakes, that he wasn't perfect. But as far as I know, everything Jesus said would happen, so far, 100% of it has taken place. And then last but not least, watch this. 
to realize it's simpler than you think, to realize it is simpler than you think. Yes, I know there's some complexities. I know there's some challenges with, with prophecy and, and we'll, we'll deal with a few of those, but enough is said to give us a sense of direction and enough is said to help us discern the times and enough is said to give us a sense of hope. So we're going to begin our journey but before we do that, I want to ask you to think about this with me for a moment. When we begin to examine these scriptures, particularly about prophecy, I need you to join me in trying to understand what it meant to the original audience that heard it. In our case, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, these were words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in answer to some questions that they had. And so we're going to see that some of what Jesus said is now history to us, though it was future for them. And some of what Jesus said is even still future for us. And the challenge sometimes is to pull those two things apart and say what's happened already and what is yet to come. Now, with that in mind, let's start with a word of prayer as we get this series ready. Would you join me? Lord, we just want to commit this series to you. We're stepping out in faith to look at something that's rather challenging, not always easy to understand, but we believe, God, that this is in your providence and your timing for where we are, especially these days. So we want to begin by asking you to say at least one thing to each of our hearts today, just one thing, God, that we could take with us as a challenge, as a correction, as an encouragement. And we want to open ourselves up to you for that. Would you do that right now? Just just wherever you are, wherever you're watching right now, would you just say, Lord, speak to my heart today. Give me one thing. Amen. All right, let's get started. It was the Sunday before Passover when the Jews gathered together to celebrate that day when God, through his servant Moses, led them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Jerusalem was swollen with people who had come from near and who had come from far. And the tension in the city was ominous. It was, you could feel it. You had Pilate, the governor, who had the legion on high alert in case Jewish zealots, and there are plenty of them, might try to uh, cause an insurrection or commit a terrorist act. You had the religious leaders who were also uptight. They wanted to keep the peace as well because, you know, they wanted to hang on to what little power they did have. They hated the Romans, but they knew how to play the game. The problem? The problem was the people. The people were tired. They were sick and tired of being oppressed and being taxed. They wanted a new Moses who would lead them. In fact, many of them knew that the old Moses had made a prophecy. It went like this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must what? You must listen to him. Well, Jesus knew those words himself. And what he was about to do that Sunday would spark tremendous energy and excitement among the people. We think of it as Palm Sunday. And I want to give you kind of a visual idea of what's about to happen because it's going to be important to kind of see these things as we move through the passage and in the coming weekends. But 
This is a picture that was taken when I was in Israel a couple of years ago. We're stand, this is a Jewish graveyard now, but we're standing on top of what would have been known as the Mount of Olives and still is known as the Mount of Olives. And I want you to notice that there's a little valley here. This is called the Kidron Valley. You go up from the valley and where you see the, uh, the Dome of the Rock there, what we have here, the mosque there, we, we have here is the area where the temple would have sat in Jesus' day, okay? So Jesus is on this side, let's say here, and he's going to make his way down and up into Jerusalem, all right? Let me give you a different angle of that now. And what we see here is, is what scholars think may be very close to the pathway that Jesus would have taken down. We don't know exactly, and I've walked down this so many different times, but you can imagine Jesus is going to take this route down here. Now, what Jesus does is he calls his disciples to go and fetch a donkey. And he sits on that donkey. So we have this animation here. You can imagine Jesus sitting. He's looking across at the city. And he begins to make his way down. And the people are so excited that you see in this next picture, they, they literally form a parade route. And everybody is celebrating. And everybody is celebrating because many knew the prophecy from Zechariah. And Zechariah said these words in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus is, is taking that scripture and he's fulfilling it in front of them. And look how Luke responds. Luke tells us, here's what the people were saying. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They are so excited. The new Moses is here. The Messiah is here. And so now for the religious leaders especially, this heightens the tension. That was Sunday. On Monday, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem and to the temple. And he cleans house. Literally, he cleans house. Look at this animation. Jesus turns the tables over where the money's being exchanged, the temple shekel. And he chases out those who are selling the animals there. And he points his finger at the religious leaders. And he says, you have, you've taken my father's house and you've turned it into a business. And you're ripping off the people and you're selling animals that are unclean. And as a result, as you can see in our next picture, the leaders were very angry and upset with Jesus, who was very angry and upset with them. Look what the text says. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables, the money changers, and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus goes on in the passage and he tells them that as a result of that, they are going to be judged. Look what he says. It says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. And we'll come back to that passage in just, in just a couple of, of moments. But this is a, it's like a huge insult to them. All right? Because he knows that they know that Jesus is talking about, about them and they're angry that he would treat them that way, that he would, they would dare call it his temple. What does he mean, my temple? 
This guy, where did he come from? He came from Nazareth. Who comes from Nazareth? He's a self-trained uh, rabbi. Who is he to claim that he has such great authority? And so that was Monday. And then on Tuesday, Jesus is back in the temple again, and he's teaching. And while he's teaching, the religious leaders send in wave after wave of leaders to try to trap Jesus in his words, to try to turn the crowd against him. And they present all kinds of questions and scenarios, and Jesus just outwits them all, and it works against the leaders. Rather than, rather than them turning toward God, or away from Jesus, they turn toward Jesus. The people do, and it makes the leaders even more incensed and angry. And as a result of that, Jesus finally just lets loose, and he cuts them with words of judgment because of their wickedness. And in the midst of the whole thing, he tells them a story. He tells them a story about a man who owns some land, and he goes away. And uh, he share crops with his servants who are left to take care of the land. When it's time to collect the profit from the harvest, he sends his servant. They beat one, they kill another, and so he decides, well, I'll, I'll send my son. At least they'll respect my son. But when they see the son coming, they, they think to themselves, ah, there's the heir. Let's, let's grab him and kill him. And then it'll all be ours. And Jesus looks at them and he says, what do you think the owner is going to do when he finally shows up? Well, he's going to punish them and he's going to give it away. Now we come back to the text I want to read to you. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him. But look, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Now, we know the crowds are fickle. We know that one day they will call him a king, and the next day, what will they do? They will call for him to be crucified because he doesn't come through. They're finally persuaded by the crowds, and Jesus knows that. That's why in John 2, it says he did not trust himself because he knew the hearts of men. He didn't trust himself to everyone because he knew what was in the hearts of the people. But at that point in time, man, they're ready to make him king. They're ready for a new Moses to deliver them. And Jesus walks away from the temple that day. And as he walks away from the temple that day, his disciples speak up and, and they're behaving more like tourists than they are his followers. It's like they don't have a clue of what is really taking place. And one of them says to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, isn't this tremendous? Look at this place. And you can't blame them for being excited about it. It was, it was an awesome place. We have a, a replica. I uh, got this picture when I was in uh, Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city in a model that you can walk around that is based on what it would look like in Jesus' day. And so here's this Temple Mount. It doesn't do justice to what it was really like, but the Temple Mount was about 35 acres. And when you think of all the buildings, including the temple itself that was built here, it took over 42 years to be built. 
The temple itself was overlaid with gold and whatever didn't uh, get covered with gold was this white stone and in the sun, it was almost blinding. It was really one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was the largest sanctuary of the ancient world. But most importantly, it came to represent that place where God was present with his people and where God, in that sense, governed his people and where people came in order to find the forgiveness of sins and mercy. The issue was that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they felt it was their responsibility to broker the law, to broker grace and to broker forgiveness. And that's where Jesus had such a hard time with them. That's where he drew the line. They totally misrepresented God. They totally misrepresented the law. They totally misrepresented the mercy of God. They had taken the law and made it the Savior. When the law existed to point us to the need for a Savior, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. And so that helps us understand how Jesus responds to them when, he said, when they say, wow, isn't this amazing? Look at the words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 24, 2, do you see all these buildings that took 42 years plus to build on 35 acres? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. That had to have sent shockwaves through the disciples. Now, there's something subtle that's happening here that, that we miss out on, and I, I want to kind of draw your attention back to it for a moment. And that's this idea of Jesus walking away from the temple. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament and to the prophet Ezekiel, he had a vision when he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, God's glory came to settle in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Then God's glory came to settle in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Well, Ezekiel has this vision of God's presence leaving and going away because God is about to send the Babylonians who are going to be used by God to judge the people in Judea. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be crushed. The temple is going to be absolutely destroyed in about 586 BC as the glory of God leaves. The question is, when did the glory of God ever come back? Well, the glory of God came back when Jesus entered the temple because he was very God. So this is sense as Jesus leaves the temple that day of once again, God has been rejected by the people. The people have rebelled. God sent his son like the parable Jesus told. And they're going to kill the son. And so this walking away, this turning the back, it's like shaking the dust off is to say, now judgment is coming. And that's what Jesus meant by those words. The pride of Jerusalem, which is not God, it's an edifice, it's a building, it's a shrine to house and box God in. It's about to be destroyed. No longer, Jesus said to the woman in John chapter 4, are you going to worship God on any mountain? We worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's about to happen. Well, the disciples were, were beside themselves. It just was hard for them to <clears throat> conceive that that this is going to be destroyed. What does Jesus mean by all of this? 
What's he talking about here? So they go down across the Kidron Valley, back up the Mount of Olives, which I showed you that picture of earlier, and Jesus sat down. Mark tells us that Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to Jesus in front of everybody and asked him, you know, when is this going to be fulfilled? What will be the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem? Now, Matthew, in his version, gives us another angle and helps us see more of what was asked of Jesus, and this becomes very important for us. Here's what Matthew puts in here. Tell us when will all this happen, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? That's important. Because for the disciples, the idea that the temple's going to be destroyed and Jerusalem's going to be leveled, to them is simultaneous then. That must mean that the end of time has come and Jesus is returning. What Jesus does in the rest of Matthew chapter 24, and it's also found in, Luke thir- I'm sorry, in Mark 13 and Luke chapter 21, is Jesus responds to both questions. The challenge for us is we weren't there. So we've got to figure out what was he saying to them about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which we know happened 40 years later, about 70 AD. So what words were their future, but our past then? What words does he speak, which are our future? And because I've run out of time, I can't start into that this weekend. But next weekend, we'll start into that. We're going to be looking at some very fascinating things. You don't want to miss it. But we still have some prophetic kinds of things to talk about right now in terms of what in the world is going on in our country? What's taking place all around us? You know, I cannot blame anybody for being angry right now with what is happening in our country, what's happening amongst our leaders, what's happening just across America. I can't blame people for being angry about the social injustice and angry about the rhetoric that's out there and angry about, you know, angry at the president and angry at the Congress and, you know, angry at at the pandemic and, and angry about, you know, how close can we sit and how far can we be and, you know, all the stuff. I mean, we are all up to here with it. And it's boiling over and it's just coming out in some in some very ugly ways. And I think that's what I'm really concerned about for you and for me. It's one thing to be upset about things. You have the right to be upset. I have the right to be upset. But as followers of Jesus, how we do that, how we express that, can either make or break our witness for Christ. I was reading something recently that kind of provoked my thoughts a little bit. It's something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said a long time ago when he was trying to describe what what overtook the 60 million people of Russia? Communism. And he made this phrase. He said, men had forgotten God. And this is what we ended up with. You go on reading what Solzhenitsyn said and meant is we lost virtue. We lost morality. We lost love because we forgot about God. And if you don't have God, you don't have virtue, you don't have morality, you don't have love. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as a nation, I feel like, I feel like as a nation, we are forgetting God. But listen carefully. Here's what's really concerning to me. I feel like as Christians, as the church, we're forgetting God. 
I feel like in this season, we've become more political than spiritual. We've come to that place where we're, it's like we have a political worldview. We've lost our biblical worldview. Remember we talked about in our series on, on spiritual warfare, we're supposed to stand firm against the unseen enemy who's behind all this chaos that's going on and, and we're to stand firm on the truth. Not a politician, not a party, but on the truth of God's word. Because when we forget God, then we start to lose our virtue. We start to lose our values. And we start to lose the love that God has called us to. How do we change the world? How do we change what's going on in our country? It's not going to be by acts of violence. It's not going to be by pointing fingers at each other. It's not going to be uh, through profanity. It's not going to be through vengeance. It's not going to be through threats. Yes, we should influence our society around us. But we're to influence our society, not by behaving like the society. We're to influence society with the grace and the truth and the love of God. Jesus said, how are people going to know who you are? By the love first that you have for each other. And then for others. Love your enemies, Jesus said. And I think one of the things that grieves my heart and the hearts of many pastors that I've been talking to across the country in our own state is just how divided the church has become in this season. I mean, we're divided over masks. We're divided over the vaccine. We're divided over, you know, gathering or not regathering. We're divided over racism and justice. And, and, and it's not healthy. It's not good. People say, well, my faith has been shaken. Well, then where is your faith? Who is your faith in? And I, I'm talking, I'm eating my own words right now. I'm not scolding you. I'm talking to myself too. I mean, it's been several times God's just looked at me in the spirit and just said, who's your faith in? Christ doesn't shake our faith. He builds our faith. He strengthens our faith. People cause us to lose our faith. Systems cause us to lose our faith. Our faith has to be based on Christ, who he is, what he's done for us. Not our personality or personalities. Not on government, not in a political party. They're filled with human beings like us who are sinful and are going to say and do the most ridiculous things, but not Jesus. And I think in order for this nation to heal, the church has got to heal first. We've got, it's got to start with us first. We've got to learn to agree to disagree. We've got to learn to respect each other. We've got to learn to pray for each other and encourage each other to bless each other, to help each other. So as we come this particular weekend to communion, celebrate communion together, I want you to search your soul like I've had to. I want you to ask God to forgive you if you have said or thought or done some things that are not in keeping with his spirit toward brothers and sisters in Christ or toward those who are not in the church, to those who lead us. If God shows you some things you need to confess, some words that you've spoken you shouldn't have said, some actions, some attitudes that are there, just, just ask him to search your heart and to bring healing to you. Focus on Christ. He gave his life for you and me. That's what communion is all about. It's that sacrifice that he made for each one of us.
that gives us the capacity not to ever have to take vengeance, but to give us the capacity to even sacrifice our own lives, to live a life of love and grace and truth. I'm not talking about compromise. I will never compromise on the truth. I'm not talking about backing down from the truth. I will always stand firm on the truth and be courageous with the truth. But always the truth in love. We can't expect our nation to change if God's people are caught up in the swell of all this rhetoric and all this hatred and all of this anger. Now, I'd like to believe that Wooddale Church, there are hardly any of us that feel or believe in a wrong or negative way. But there may be a few of us. Maybe there are honestly many of us. As we start this year out, I want to encourage you, don't forget God. Remember God. Remember who He is. Remember what He's done for you and for me. Don't see yourself, let's not see yourself as victims of what's going on. Let's not be holding to a party or to a personality. We belong to Jesus. He put us here for a reason. Not to be angry, not to use profanity, not to riot, not to insult, but to share, show the gospel of peace. So would you just bow your heads wherever you are right now at home, one of our campuses, and just listen for a few moments to some beautiful music and as you do that, pray. Be honest with God. Let him search your heart. The world needs the church right now. That means it needs you. And it needs me. Let's take this time and be still. Amen. Listen, thank you for just taking a few moments to meditate, get your heart and your mind right. What we get to do now at all of our campuses, at home if you're watching, is we get to celebrate Holy Communion together. So I'm going to let the pastors at our, at our multi-sites go ahead and take over at this moment. I want to invite the rest of you to join me. This represents the life of Jesus that was given for us so we could have peace so we could have forgiveness, and so we could make a difference in the world. If you want to peel back or if you have your own bread at home and want to break that apart and distribute it, that piece of bread represents the body of Jesus that was given for you and for me. Jesus said, this is my body that's given for you. This is my peace, my forgiveness. This is me taking your place so you can take my place. Take and eat. And if you'll grab the cup or juice, whatever you have right now, that juice represents the blood of Jesus. The Bible says we cannot have forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And Christ gave his blood once and for all to wipe the slate clean. We are forgiven. We live in a bad news world. I know that. But folks, can we focus on the good news? I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. We've got a new life. We've got hope. We've been set free. We get to make a difference here. We can turn this thing around by being who Christ called us to be, by not picking each other apart, seeing each other's faults, but adjusting our lives to the truth. 
in the end times, God is going to preserve a remnant. It's going to be the only hope of this world. You and I are part of that remnant. And this cup represents the possibility of that because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, we just thank you so much for this meal, this wonderful reminder that in a world of chaos, we can have peace. This wonderful reminder, Lord, that someday we're going to be in an eternal banquet with you. And we're going to celebrate a meal of your grace and your goodness. Until that time, Lord, when we're with you through death or through your coming, which we pray would be soon, help us to be difference makers, Lord. Help us to be the peacemakers in our world. Help the world to see that we serve God and God makes a difference. He changes our lives. Help them to see the church as unified. Help them see the church as true to you. And make a change in our nation, we pray. Desperately pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend. I want to tell you about a great opportunity before you go. You know, what our nation needs right now are people who are, first of all, surrendered to the Lord, each of us, and people who are surrendered to the Lord and filled with a heart and a passion to pray. We need to pray. We need to talk to God about not only ourselves, but our nation right now. So we have an initiative that I want to introduce you to. It's called 3 by 3 Our prayer director, Christine, put this together. I'm excited about it. I'm going to do it. I hope you will as well. All you have to do is go to our website, Go to wooddale.org slash 3x3, three times three, hyphen challenge, and you'll get instructions on how to pray three times a day for three minutes. And it's so simple. Everybody can do it, young and old alike. If we would all give three minutes, three times a day, we give you how, some ideas on how to pray at each of those slots. It would be a powerful, it would be powerful for our church It'll be powerful for our nation. And we're going to build on this as the year goes by. So check that out. And I hope you'll practice that with me, the three by three challenge. It's what's going to change our nation. It's what's going to make our church and the churches across this country stronger than they've ever been as we cry out to God. We've never needed him more and we need him right now. I'll see you next weekend as we head into the Olivet Discourse and talk about the signs, the times. God bless.